Inspiration often comes through exceptional moments. In this case, it comes in the form of an exceptional human being, Mari Manukyan, the talented 28-year-old Armenian Michigan state representative who is changing the game. Mari Manukyan was born and raised in Birmingham, Michigan, and is serving her second term representing the 40th district. She currently serves as the Deputy Democratic Caucus Whip and as the Minority Vice Chair for the House Committee on Energy. At 28, Manugyan is the youngest woman serving in the 101st legislature and the first Armenian-American woman to serve in the Michigan House of Representatives. Prior to joining the legislature, she served in various capacities of public service at the federal level, including interning for then-Congressman John D. Dingle, working with the Council on Foreign Relations, and assisting Ambassador Samantha Power at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. Manugan also worked in the Office of English Language Programs and Diplomacy at the U.S. Department of State, where she served with foreign and civil service officers. Manugan is a third-generation Armenian-American whose great-grandparents came to America in the 1920s to escape the Armenian Genocide. She earned both her bachelor's and master's degrees from the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. She is an avid Detroit sports and Team USA fan and enjoys figure skating, reading, traveling, and spending time with her family. Manugan is a member of St. Sarkis Armenian Church in Dearborn and now lives in Birmingham. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And you're listening to Haituk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. So, Mari, welcome. Thank you for coming. We're excited to have you here. Um, Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so, we wanted to start off by, you know, your education and, you know, where you were first going. I was an international business student, global studies. I understand that. I think you studied international relations at Georgetown, correct? Uh, the George Washington University. George Washington, yeah. All great uh, D.C. schools. So upon starting your, your undergrad, Mari, where did you see your career initially going? Did you know you wanted to end up where you are today? Uh, not really. I always knew I wanted to be involved in public service. Um, really started out working in, as an intern in Congress for one of our congressmen, um, the late, great John Dingle, who is someone that um, he was the dean of the house when I was an intern on Capitol Hill for him. And so um, he had a great deal of seniority and what was really great about that was, you know, I was sort of afforded the opportunity to be in a lot of spaces that interns weren't normally able to be in. Um, I also interned for Ambassador Samantha Power at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. Um, and that internship was, um, something that was incredibly formative for me and something that sort of signified that I really did want to be in public service. Um, and so, um, you know, whether I wasn't really sure that I would run for office right away as a young person, but... Um, knew that this was a, a career field that I thought I would be in for a while. You mentioned Samantha Power. You mentioned you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, the other congressman that you worked for. Uh, I mean, were there any other figures, maybe not professional, that were also an inspiration for you to go towards domestic politics or just the career choice that you're in right now? So, um, I mean, the way that I ended up deciding to run for office really was sort of... Um, kind of accidental. Um, I attended an event in Washington, D.C. that was um, sort of a convening of people um, that supported the organization EMILY's List, which um, has been supportive of me since I started running for office. Um, it's a political action committee that supports pro-choice Democratic women who run for office. Um, and so I attended a conference that they were hosting right before the 2016 presidential election 
um, that talked about um, sort of women's representation in government just more broadly, whether you were Democrat or Republican. Um, and the numbers um, in state legislatures were dismal. Um, obviously, we hadn't elected a female president in the United States or a vice president at that time. Um, and we've made significant progress in that area with um, Kamala Harris winning her election um, this year. But that was something that was very much seen um, as something on the horizon that we hadn't achieved yet. Um, but as you trickled down to more local offices, um, things really did get um, you know, more dire for women in public office. Uh, in Michigan, for example, um, where I am, um, we were ranking, I think, in the bottom third of 50 states uh, in terms of female representation across both parties um, in our legislature. And so that was something that really made me rethink um, where I thought I could best be of service. I thought it was really important that um, female representation be something that we tackle as a country. Um, in studying international affairs and, and in studying other countries, um, you know, there are many, many other countries around the world that have declared independence uh, way, uh, way more recently than the United States did, and yet um, we still hadn't elected a female president, and countries like Liberia have. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, looking at things like that, um, you know, they're seeing that there are other countries around the world who um, have made those strides that we didn't. I felt like I needed to be part of the solution. 100%. No, I've, I've seen the um, statistics where, especially in st state legislature houses, it's women are way underrepresented compared to the, you know, the ratio of the population, right? But um, you flipped that district, it, the Birmingham district. It was Republican and it was not a, not a young woman, you know, and then you took over. I, I was confident, Madi, whenever I saw you starting to campaign in the beginning, I, I, my expectations, I'm telling you, my expectations were already high. I was already like, I know she's going to win. And I remember like the day you won, uh, I think it was still late for you guys on the East Coast or the Midwest. Yeah. But, but uh, I was, you know, refreshing that page till midnight. And I, <laughs> I shared it on my story and you shared it. You know, I gave you a shout out. That's so, so funny. So, so I've been following your 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 great work the whole time. Uh, big fan and everything. So Yes, we both are, definitely. Um, so, Amadi, you've noted your, your father as your biggest champion. Um, do you think that, you know, his role as a union leader helped inspire that political effic efficacy or that, um, you know, hope that you can create change through politics? Yeah, I mean, both my parents really have done um, a good job of being champions for, frankly, for both my sister and I in our careers, which I think is pretty much the foundation of being successful in whatever you do is having um, people, whether you're, they're your parents or some sort of really strong support system that backs you up um, throughout everything. But for sure, my father in particular um, has had a really big impact in my career insofar as he's the person who sort of encouraged these really difficult conversations to happen at the dinner table when they may not necessarily be all that difficult to have in reality. So, um, you know, because of his work as a union leader, we um, often talked about the struggles of working people. My dad talked about his job a lot at the dinner table. Um, I learned a lot about, you know, sort of what collective bargaining was and what it meant to be in a, in a union and, and um, what, you know, what was the right thing to fight for, right? What was sort of considered acceptable in the workplace and what wasn't. Um, and so, you know, and, and all of the challenges that come with being in union leadership where, you know, sometimes trying to explain to workers who are part of that collective, you know, what the benefit of being in a union is and what those dues really go towards. Um, you know, most people think that they go towards political action, but they don't. They actually really just go towards collective bargaining, uh, and they go right back to, you know, making sure the workers are represented at the, at the bargaining table. 
Um, and so having those conversations with my dad very early on in my life um, really have shaped um, sort of my understanding of, frankly, what has been such a really important movement in the state of Michigan in particular, um, because you can sort of trace the origins of the modern American labor movement to uh, Detroit. Oh, true. Uh, since the recession, for sure, I know the the working class in Michigan's had a hard, really hard times. So, and I've seen your attention and focus on them. So you've done a an amazing job, if you ask me. And I'm sure your dad agrees as well. But I did want to ask now, like your parents' story. I mean, were they born here? Where did they immigrate here? Yeah. So I'm a third generation Armenian American. My parents were both born here. Um, both born in the Metro Detroit area. Um, my, on my father's side, um, my family has worked all different kinds of jobs, actually on both sides of my family, but, um, in particular, my father's family, uh, rented a farm in Monroe, which is sort of close to the Ohio border. Um, my grandfather, um, he passed in 2013, but he was, um, someone who was a really decorated hairdresser actually in Metro Detroit and, um, and, worked in Birmingham, which is the community I represent. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was someone who just really enjoyed working with his hands and was able to go to um, barber and beauty school on the GI Bill. So that was a really great opportunity that was afforded to him um, after World War II. Um, and then on my mother's side, my um, my grandmother actually worked in a bank until she was married and she was actually fired for being married. So she's mm-hmm. one of the first wow. people um, whose like story I heard we didn't really talk about it in the context of equal pay for equal work or for dis- or in the context of discrimination, but like now as a legislator introducing a lot of bills that take into account, um, you know, equal pay for equal work and paid family leave. I think a lot about like what happened to my grandmother where she um, did have a really great job, um, but wasn't able to keep her job because she chose to start a family. Um, and so I, I think about that a lot. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side, um, played a few uh, seasons of football for Wayne State University, um, but was injured and could no longer continue his education. He really wanted to be a dentist. So he lost his scholarship. Um, and then eventually um, he dropped out of school and worked um, and did a lot of more like entrepreneurial things, um, owned, mm-hmm. you know, a coffee shop and um, gas stations and sold cars and stuff like that. So I think, you know, just sort of having that um working class background. My dad grew up in Allen Park and my mother grew up in Lathrop Village, um, two areas that are sort of um, became sort of the suburban sprawl of the city of Detroit uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, having that background is definitely something that uh, is a, a compass for me when I go to work in the legislature. Well, so Mari, I know the Michigan Armenian community pretty well. I went to Camp Hassan. You were my counselor there. So, you know, <laughs> just like a, right a shout out Full to circle. the Cholakians, shout out to the Topuzians, all the families that everyone Yeah, else. the Topuzians, Topuzians, proud constituents of the 40th district. We love so, them. <laughs> no, so shout out to all of them. But uh, but I want you to, because maybe not everyone knows about the Michigan Armenian community, but you're it's huge. It's a huge community. Can you give us a little bit of like the, I don't know, some history or uh some aspects of the Armenian community there, like schools and churches yeah. and stuff like that? Yeah, so the Michigan Armenian community is pretty strong. I think um, the last estimate we got was between like fifteen and 20,000 yeah. uh, strong in Michigan. Um, and it's mostly concentrated in Metro Detroit, but um, there are some Armenians on the west side of the state in Grand Rapids and uh, that metro area, and then also in the middle of the state near our state capital in Lansing and the Lansing metro area as well. So um, there are the Armenian churches, however, are in the Metro Detroit area. 
Um, the Prelacy Church is St. Sarkis, and that's the one that my family and I have attended for years, although we do go to both, and we're members, we're members at both. Um, but I was baptized at St. Sarkis um, in Dearborn, which uh, the thing I really enjoy about that is that um, it is situated next to, I'm not sure if it still is, but at one time it was the largest mosque in America, mm-hmm. um, is right next door. And the relationship that the mosque and the church have is really a powerful partnership. Yeah. Um, they really, they help each other out a lot. It's actually really interesting. Um, and so that's kind of a, a great thing. I, I went to a, um, an interfaith uh, event and both the imam from the mosque and our priest were sitting together. That's so awesome. it was like, I, I walked into the room and they were together. Um, so that was pretty cool. Dearborn has a massive Lebanese population, um, Lebanese American population. The state representative from uh, Dearborn is actually Lebanese American, um, Abdullah Hamoud. And then, um, of course, it also, I believe, has the largest concentration of Iraqis outside of Iraq. Mm. Um, wow. So it's, it's the largest Iraqi diaspora um, in the world. Um, and so that's something that's really um, quite interesting about the community there. And then, in, and then the church on the diocese side is in Southfield. Um, and that is something that's sort of an icon in the metro Detroit area. It has a really big gold dome. And so... Uh, folks who are not Armenian as well know a lot about um, St. John Armenian Church. Well, I have to say, first of all, Krista, the best shawarma I've had in this country, it's not in Boston, it's not in California, it's actually in Dearborn, Michigan. In I will say Dearborn? that. Dearborn? Yeah, 100%. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anytime anytime Representative Hamoud invites us for food, I'm like, okay, clear 100%. the schedule, I'm coming. 100%. <laughs> Did you go to the Armenian high school, though? They have a high school there that not just Armenians go to. Right. Yeah. So I didn't attend the AGBU school, but AGBU has um, a charter school that's sort of like on the campus of St. John Armenian Church um, and has like the the gym for the school is part of the veteran building, uh, which is sort of a historic building in the in the Armenian community. Um, that's like a hall that um, was named for Armenian veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh yeah, I, I didn't attend there, but a ton of my friends did, um, and a lot of my friends have gone back, and they're either their teachers there now or their own kids go there, that sort of thing. But we've always been really supportive of the HBU Manugan School, right. not the same Manugans as me. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> true that. <laughs> I always had to always have to like go in and clarify because um, the la- my last name is actually um, very well known in Metro Detroit um, because of Richard Manugan and the work that he, him and his family mm-hmm. um, did in the downriver area um, with Masco Corporation. And so there are buildings at Wayne State University that have the Manugan last name on them and that sort of thing. And so um, it's always a funny conversation to have with people who are not Armenian because all like people who are not Armenian know I'm not related to them or people who, I'm Arme- who are Armenian know I'm not related to them but uh, people who are non-armenian or just like in political circles have always thought that i was related to them no i think someone recently just asked me to same manugians i was like i don't think so (laughs) i grew in michigan for ayf olympics yeah Yeah. that's the only time i think it was ayf olympics i came to michigan yeah yeah Mm -hmm. maddie if uh, i'm curious if if ayf olympics was in detroit would we see you there they don't have figure skating though i must say that's (laughs) that's something we need to i used to run i used to run um i rode the bench in south softball for detroit um i've played nats many many Mm -hmm. times probably five six seven times like i go to this stuff all the time um and if the thing is i i'm always bummed about this um I try to go on a non-election year. Um, so like if AYF Olympics were to take place in person this year, God willing, everyone's able to get mm-hmm. vaccinated. This would be a year that I would try to go. Um, 
But if it's an if it's an election year, it's harder for me to get away because that's kind of the beginning of when campaign season really kicks off in earnest for the general election. It's true. Um, and also, it's always over Labor Day weekend, and that um, is sort of an obligation I have to the labor community here is to be in Detroit for the Labor Day parade, which is like the largest demonstration of the labor movement um, in this country. And it's like typically, if it's a presidential year. Um, like this year, it did, the parade didn't happen because of the coronavirus, but I could bet you that Joe Biden would have been campaigning in Detroit on Labor Day because um, that's sort of, that's pretty standard. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Maria, I mentioned uh, figure skating. I was curious how you got involved into that. Is that, is that something that you've just sort of gone back to as an outlet? Yeah. Um, so I've been, uh, I've been involved in the figure skating community since I was four, um, really was inspired by uh, Michelle Kwan, watching her at the Olympics and at the World Championships. It was just something I saw on TV and thought was um, just a really interesting, um, cool thing to watch and just a sport that I enjoyed. And, um, of course, you know, Michigan is very cold in the winter, and so uh, it has a really strong ice sports culture here. There's a lot of people that I grew up with, um, Armenian Nanat, who played a lot of hockey, um, I think I, I might be like the only Armenian figure skater I know other than my sister, but, mm-hmm. um, the, but in the Metro Detroit area, ice sports were a really big deal. Um, and so I, I skated through high school and I picked it back up again in college and have competed in college. And then, um, now as an adult, um, I'm working with, uh, an organization called figure skating in Detroit. We haven't, um, announced a whole lot of our work yet, but we're, um, ramping that up and we're excited about that. Funny, funny story, actually. I remember when I was young, my dad was like, Hike, you should do uh, speed skating because you'd be the only Armenian to do it and you could go represent Armenia <laughs> easily because there'd be <laughs> no one else. Mari, if things were different, who knows? You could have maybe represented Armenia on the Olympic levels <laughs> for Hayastan, for Armenia. Who knows? <laughs> well, I, I mean, so I, I skated at a pretty high level when I was in middle school and elementary school, but had like some sports injuries along the way. And like, you kind of, when you're at that level, you sort of have to make a decision about, um, you know, what are you going to pursue and are you going to uh, really commit, spend a lot of time on the ice and that yeah. sort of thing and commit. Um, and it changes your whole life. And at that point, um, you know, it was like not something that um, I thought was feasible or like really the direction I wanted to take. Yeah, more just the hobby. But um, I did want to take it back to your schooling and going back to university. Um, I feel like uh, from what I understand, like you got a lot of support from the community, like a lot of from the Armenian community specifically, you know, different scholarships and grants. I mean, how did that uh, what does that mean to you to get all that support, you know, uh, era scholarship well, I- and whatever? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it's something that I've been really grateful for um, and something that, you know, that sort of support has continued through um, the work that I do now. Um, But I think it's really important that these organizations continue to support um, young people who are are succeeding academically. Um, And I think that, you know, furthermore, I think they do a really good job of connecting you to um, folks who can be mentors to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, each of these different organizations does a, a pretty fantastic job of that. Word. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you've done nothing but reciprocate that support in many ways, Mari. Um, and you've given a great deal back to the community. I saw that during the Azerbaijani attack uh, this past fall, you were able to pass state house legislation in Michigan in condemning Turkish and Azeri aggression. Was there any... Um, pushback or were your colleagues generally supportive of that um, initiative? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. A lot of it was like a learning opportunity and a teachable moment. Um, for most folks, they didn't really know where Azerbaijan was on a map. Um, and so 
um, that was something that was really important um, was to really just educate people about what was happening. Um, obviously, being Armenian American, um, and there were, you know, other folks who are either married to Chaldean uh, folks or they're Greek or, or whatever, um, you know, what have you, they understood um, understood the resolution, but for folks who are just really unfamiliar with the community and really unfamiliar with the conflict in general, um, we took the time to make sure we provided resources to my colleagues if they had questions about it. Um, but I worked really closely with the majority party um, to, you know, really uh, talk through what the resolution entailed, what kind of backlash the, the party leaders um, on their side and our side might receive for passing something like this and um, help talk through what those opportunity costs would be for making a decision like this. And ultimately we made the call that, that moving the resolution forward was something we could all, um, that we thought was important enough to do, um, regardless of what those uh, consequences might've looked like. Um, almost immediately upon introducing the legislation, um, the Azeri um, embassy and Turkish embassies ramped up, um, you know, sending uh, letters um, and calling into offices they, of course, completely ignored my office, um, but went around me and uh, trashed me to the other offices. Um, it's something that we could sort of expect, um, given the behavior of the uh, Turkish embassy when we passed, introduced and passed the Armenian Genocide Resolution uh, in 2020. Funny enough, they didn't do that to me in 2019, but they decided they would do it in 2020. I don't really understand what the difference was, but I mean, the language is essentially the same. Um, but nevertheless, um, it was something we kind of anticipated, so we made sure to have those resources available uh, to my colleagues who wouldn't necessarily understand, like, why there was drama around the situation. Um, and, you know, ultimately what was so great about it was we were the first state in the country to pass that resolution. Um, and so other states around the country, um, you know, took notice, other representatives who are not necessarily Armenian, um, in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, reached out to our office to um, make sure they could get copies of the language so they could try to um, have those same conversations in advance legislation. Dude, that's awesome. Um, I, I do want to mention that uh, Michigan, correct me if I'm wrong too, Mario, Michigan's one of the only states uh, to recognize Artsakh as an independent country too. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So in 2017, I was actually there when, when they did it. Um, in 2017, I wasn't elected yet. I was a candidate. Um, but former Senator David Knizek, he's now a Wayne County commissioner, um, but former state Senator David Knizek was the um, individual who introduced the resolution um, in the Senate, and um, it was also passed um, through the Senate. So, um, yep, Michigan it remains one of the only states in the country uh, to recognize the independence of Artsakh. Um, it also has um, really historic legislation that mandates the teaching of the Armenian Genocide in all public schools. It's part of a broader um, law that requires the teaching of the Holocaust, the Rwandan Genocide, um, as well as uh, the Cambodian Genocide and any others that would sort of be in that same category. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Darfur might also be listed. But um, it's, we're, you know, sort of a rarity insofar as um, the Armenian community here um, obviously, it's a, a pretty sizable community for it not being on the east or west coast. Um, has done a really good job of being politically active uh, to the point of, you know, really garnering the attention of elected leaders and um, making real tangible change. Well, certainly setting some powerful precedents. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, I always think it's like interesting, though, whenever state bodies though will take stances on international matters, you know, and you said education is one of the big things that comes with that. But it, do you see any other value in state bodies kind of taking international stances on stuff like this? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously it can get very tricky um, just because if your state is at odds, uh, it's hard to, you know, really make a public or foreign public policy from the state legislature, um, but it's important to take a position on issues that are important to constituencies in your state. And so um, because we have such a strong Armenian American community, it was really important that we take that position. Um, and there have been other instances, for example, right now, there's a really um, ugly um, uh, military coup happening in Myanmar. Um, and it, it's something that our legislature has seen resolutions um, introduced on as well. And so when someone is able to, you know, take that first leap and that first step towards, um, you know, making sure that the state of Michigan's on the right side of history on a particular um, difficult political issue, especially one that involves human rights abuses, um, it makes it easier for other representatives in that legislative body to take those similar positions. Certainly, it opens that door. That's that's amazing, um, Madi. During during the conflict in the homeland this past fall, shifting gears a little bit, um, I know at least for me it was hard to focus on my career or anything really. And um, even in the midst of, you know, uh, the U.S. election back home. And I think that's a testament of the duality of being a diasporan, you know. And for many people, it felt like our hands were tied, especially, you know, being here and seeing what's going on. There's only so much money we can raise and send over to help out. But in your case, you know, politics is an outlet that can create that level of catharsis because you have that, you know, ability to act and affect tangible change. Um, And I wanted to ask, how did being a member of the Armenian diaspora affect those months for you? Yeah, I mean, I talked a lot uh, with my colleagues as sort of like, I felt like I was doing a bad job of being an Armenian and a bad job of being a representative because I felt like I just couldn't, I, on any given day, there was always someone who was like critical that I wasn't striking the right balance. Um, and that was a huge issue. Uh, at least, I mean, for me, it was, a, it was something that I, you know, when you take on a job like the one that I have, you just sort of have to know that there's going to be people who are completely unsatisfied. You, you will never be doing enough. Um, and, you know, the thing that I would say is that it oftentimes is really um, kind of difficult, especially when it comes from someone in the Armenian community, because um, I'm not a federal representative. I'm not a congresswoman. I'm not a senator. Um, and we, in my office, take it to right to the edge of what our office's capabilities are um, up to and including me, you know, picking up the phone and calling congressional representatives that I have a personal relationship with and making a personal ask uh, that they co-sponsor or sponsor something, um, which many state representatives don't use their capital for, right? Um, you know, I could be using that capital on something for that's, a, you know, something tangible in the budget for my district. I could be using that capital on something else um, and have, you know, have expended those conversations in um, you know, in asking for things for the Armenian community. And so, you know, just because I don't put it out there on my social media that I'm doing these things behind the scenes doesn't mean that they're not happening. And I think that, you know, that can be sort of a challenge is to, to you know, not um, divulge private conversations I have, um, you know, and, and keep that confidence with people that I have trust in that they're going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um With, you know, the public saying, well, you're not saying enough or you're not loud enough or you haven't done enough. Um, and that can be, a, you know, a tough thing to sort of uh, strike that balance. Well, from our point of view, Mari, I think you've done a great job with that balance. You, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you've done a really good job of representing. You know, you're just a, you're a state legislator, but almost it feels like you're you're representing all Armenians at the same time. So uh, it's <laughs> it, it, uh, no pressure. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but you were also mentioning, uh, you know, how the Armenian Genocide Resolution got passed through Congress last year and 
you know, as an Armenian American, you know, we've been, we've spent years, like our entire, you know, uh, lives, let's say, going to protests, calling our congressmen and, uh, you know, and then they're always kind of telling us, yeah, we'll do this, we'll do that, virtue signaling, you know, by all the past administrations, you know, Trump being the last one, uh, talking about how great Armenians are, and then just falling short always. And so, my expectations in general are pretty low, even with, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, they've gotten a lot better this past few weeks as we're seeing, uh, you know, the Biden administration being very confident about their stance on the Armenian genocide, uh, the president, you know, uh, recognizing it. But what are your expectations? Do you feel good about that coming this April 24th? So, I mean, I think to your point about seeing some of these statements coming from the administration and the conversations happening at the Senate level, um, I feel much more optimistic than I have in previous years, including when we've had Democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I'm just like everybody else in the community. I'm eagerly awaiting for April 24th to see what this looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't have any reason to believe that he would go back on his word, given the statements we've seen over the past couple of weeks. And, um, you know, the, the folks that I know who work, uh, work for him and work directly with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also say that aside from genocide recognition, um, you know, there's been a lot of really productive conversations that have been happening at the State Department level regarding uh, the free, freeing of the POWs um, from the war in Artsakh. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm a Democrat, and I supported Joe Biden, but I really am grateful that I did because I'm seeing tangible results uh, in terms of actual real high level engagement on, um, you know, potential OSC mint talks um, on sort of a final um, resolution for the conflict in Artsakh. And so um, that's something that I didn't see in the previous administration. And there was sort of a lot of false starts. And frankly, at the diplomatic level on that, um, you know, when we see foreign ministers from other countries like Armenia and Azerbaijan engaging, but we don't send our own foreign minister, um, that's a signal that the United States doesn't take that conflict seriously enough to engage at a high level and at, a, at an equivalent level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that said, you know, we um, encouraged by the progress we're making on that front. I think there's more that can be done. Um, but I think that, you know, what I'm encouraged about right now is that in terms of the, the foreign policy positions the Biden administration is taking, it's a much more proactive approach to the region. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. That gives me more hope as well. Um, Madi, you were one of the keynote speakers for uh, the Democratic National Convention, uh, which for many of us outside of the Midwest was our first introduction to you and a very powerful one. Um, What was that whole experience like? Honestly, um, I mean, it was surprising to be picked. I'll be honest. Um, It's a position that is um, frankly usually reserved for one person, but because of the way the convention was conducted this year, there was an opportunity to do something a little bit different with it, which Mm -hmm. was um, you know, a really, I, I thought was a really fun way to um, share with the country just how important um, not just young elected leaders, but elected leaders at the local level are, right? So a lot of the people who are represented um, on that stage are folks who were elected at the state level or even um, at the local levels, uh, mayors, that sort of thing. And I think that um, that just really, really for me, um, shows how seriously uh, the current administration is taking reaching out to young people and growing this population. In terms of being an Armenian that's represented on the national stage, I think this might be like the highest level that an Armenian was represented in a political convention um, in our country so far, which is kind of cool. Um, and like you said, it was sort of the first time that Armenians around the country have seen this. Um, and so that was something I took very seriously as well. Um, understanding that, you know, being the first, you kind of have to be the person that blazes the trail for other people. Um, it's my hope that other Armenians will want to be more involved in politics, whether they're field organizers or will run for um, school board or city council themselves. 
um, seeing that kind of um, representation on the national stage, I think is something that I hope um, inspires others. Absolutely. And speaking of blazing the trails, Samadhi, um, it's no secret that you know, women are a minority in the political realm, and as we make up 31% of state legislative seats, and that percentage only goes down as the positions get more centralized. Um, it's inspiring to see someone close to my age, like yourself, um, help create so much change, um, truly. And, and I mean that not only as an Armenian, but as a woman, as a young woman. Um, in what ways have being a woman or being young um, created obstacles or, or impacted your journey along the way? So I don't know that um, the obstacles that I have faced are much different than other younger women um, see in the workplace, which I think is something that, um, I mean, just further magnifies it because I'm out and more public than other people are. But um, I mean, everything from, uh, you know, I've received criticism from everything from like what I'm wearing to the makeup, the, the way that my makeup is done or the way that my hair is styled or whatever it is that I know that like my male colleagues would never receive that level of criticism. And that's, thing that they would be criticized for are their words or their actions and not their appearance. Um, and so that's sort of um, this added layer of being a woman in politics. Um, that is something that we just like basically have to do like a little extra work to get through the crap that we see on a regular basis. Um, I would say, you know, being a young person in Michigan, we have really strict term limits. And so our legislature um, is its kind of interesting. There's a lot of young people that serve and there's a lot of people who see this as a second or third career, something they're doing at the end of their career and not a lot of people in the middle. Right. Um, because it's hard to leave um, mid career when you're earning a good salary or you're really, um, you know, on track to be in a position for a very long time. It's hard to make that shift away um, and not have a guaranteed job at the end. Um, and so, you know, I'm fortunate to have a lot of younger um, colleagues that are sort of my peers in the legislature on both sides of the aisle. Um, and those friendships are, are long and deep. And it, that's something I really appreciate. Um, but I will say that there is um, definitely sort of this perception that, um, you know, I, and not just me, but I, I'll say this as an example that like I'm afforded opportunities because I'm young and I'm cute and not because I know what I'm talking about. Um, and that's something that is frankly like a level of jealousy from some colleagues that I'd never expected to hear. Um, and it really frustrates me because I put on my pants one leg at a time, just like everybody else. And I show up prepared for meetings and I come with a notebook and a pen and prepared to take good notes. Um, and so, uh, you know, and we, we all were elected by our constituencies, um, because we're the, we're the candidates that were, that our communities felt were the right people to be in the chamber. Um, and so, you know, that's something that can always, that, that to me is always a, a tough conversation to have, um, you know, I've had uh, colleagues say to me that they felt that I was not qualified for a position in leadership, not because they didn't think I could do the job, but because I didn't have enough life experience. Um, and so, you know, I kind of have said like, oh, I, I didn't realize that 38,000 people in my district were wrong about the level of life experience I needed to be a state legislator, but I guess they were. Um, and so, you know, it, it's something that um, is a challenge that I think you know, um, I sort of take in stride. Obviously, I know that um, in conversations with young people, and frankly, like some of my biggest and most vocal supporters are people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? Like, um, they love to see that there is a new blood and new generation of leadership that is, you know, sort of carrying um, the torch from past generations. Um, so it's not all bad. Um, but I would say that those are some of the biggest challenges that I face. 
No, for sure. It's definitely like you're saying, it's it is a grander systemic issue, institutional issue that you see in all sorts of areas, the same yeah. kind of problems you're having. For but sure. your work every day, Madi, helps move the needle. So it does. It's amazing <laughs> to see. No, true that. You know, talking about your work, though, I did want to take a chance to maybe highlight some of the projects you're currently working on or have worked on that uh, some of your accomplishments, maybe while you've been in office, uh, some bills you've probably passed. Could you tell us about a few? Yeah. So this, um, this term, we're really focused on a few different things. I actually had a really productive call today about um, distracted driving legislation we're working on. We know um, in California, um, y'all have had this law for a really long time, and we don't have it here. I don't really know why. Um, in the state of Michigan, we, are, um, we have the Motor City, and we're sort of the car capital of the whole world, and yet we don't have legislation that would um, really be uh, enforceable regarding texting and driving and cell phone use while driving. So that's something that I've championed since entering the legislature, um, have worked really closely with the families of uh, folks who have been lost to distracted driving. Um, and so that's something we're hopeful to, to maybe see um, become law. Currently, we have a version of texting, um, anti-texting and driving um, laws on the books, but they're not enforceable because um, you can, you know, live stream from your phone now, you can take Zoom calls, you can do all kinds of other stuff, and the law doesn't really cover that use. Um, and it doesn't ban the use of like holding, it doesn't ban the um, holding of your cell phone in your hand while you're in the car. And so that's really the thing that is the, the one that can make the most enforceable is if there's a ban on holding a cell phone. Um, so that's something we're really focused on. Obviously, there are big, you know, big issues like, uh, you know, encouraging more investment in renewable energy and, and equal pay for equal work and doing greater, um, you know, greater things to, to access health care for, for more people in a more affordable way. Um, those sort of big, big, broad, um, bold ideas. Um, but I serve in the minority. And so, you know, the things that I'm able to accomplish in terms of legislation that we're passing tends to not be these things that folks mostly consider as big, bold ideas. Um, a lot of them are things that people would probably be, like regular people would probably be bored by, but they're really important, right? So another package that I'm part of with Democrats and Republicans, and all of these initiatives so far have been bipartisan, which is a really important part about governing, not only in the minority, but sort of in divided government. We have a Democratic governor, but a Republican state legislature. So a lot of the work that I do is really across partisan lines. Um, so I'm working on legislation. Um, it's part of a massive package to help um, sort of what we call decriminalization. So uh, right now, a lot of our laws criminalize really mundane things that can happen. So for example, driving past your curfew uh, when you're on a graduated license program. So that would be like what people would call a learner's permit. Um, that is a that right now is um, considered some, is considered criminal. Um, so the legislation I have would make that a civil infraction um, and make it less of a penalty, especially, um, and the reason why we're really taking a good, lo good look at this is um, the past few years, we've done a lot of really strong criminal justice reform initiatives in the state of Michigan and um, understanding that, you know, the law can't necessarily be equally applied if you don't have the funds to fight in court. Mm -hmm. um, and so when something like this is criminalized, um, you run the risk of, you know, really penalizing people who can't afford to have an attorney to fight. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we have taken a really good look at laws that we think are, um, you know, not something where people would be considered incredibly dangerous uh, by decriminalizing them, but um, things that really do make sense. So um, I'm really proud to be part of that work, too. Dude, amazing. I love it. Um, also, you're saying term limits. Uh, what are the term limits for state representative? 
So in Michigan, you can serve two, uh, you serve in a two-year term and you can serve three of them. So um, I'll be running for re-election one more time after this, um, and then I can't run for the position again. So I was wondering, when is the next election? Is the next year? Um, the next election will be in 2022. So I was on the ballot in 18, 20, and then I'll be on it again in 2022. Oh, yeah. All right, Michigan Armenians. <laughs> Michigan everybody. <laughs> you know when to... Get out know there, what to do. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of which, uh, Madi, I was wondering if you have any advice that comes to mind for young people, young Armenians, or anyone who's looking to get involved in their local elections or local political spheres. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the best things that you can do are, um, for me, like, I knew that I wanted to be involved in politics or in public policy or public affairs, you know, some, some, some version of being in the public service, um, because I was able to attend the Democratic Convention in 2008 when I was in high school. And I got to see like CNN and Fox and MSNBC had their media set up um, on the floor of the convention center uh, where the Nuggets play at the Pepsi Center. Um, and I also got to see, um, you know, obviously got to see politicians sort of talking to each other and seeing what it was like to be a delegate. And then, of course, got to see all the different speeches. Um, so it was a really cool opportunity to see sort of like how these events function, what all the different roles were. You didn't necessarily have to be a politician. You could be a speech writer or you could be somebody who does the logistics to make sure your uh, candidate gets to and from where they're supposed to be on time, that sort of stuff. Um, and so what I would say is like take as many opportunities as you can to um, volunteer, be a field organizer, get out in the field and in the community and talk to people. Um, and decide if this is the career path for you. There's a lot of really like low stakes opportunities you can take to really expose yourself to um, politics and expose yourself to community organizing to decide if that's something that's of interest to you. Um, and you can either do it through supporting a particular candidate that you care deeply about or a particular issue, right? Um, I think that those are two really, really good ways you can get involved. Um, also, I suggested this, um, not that your audience is third and fourth graders, but I talked to a lot of kids because it was March's reading month um, over the past month. And so I'm in and out of classrooms on Zoom all the time. And um, one of the things that we talked about was, you know, try to attend a city council meeting just to see what it looks like. Um, and you might hear about something that bothers you. You might hear about something you want to support, that sort of thing. There's all kinds of opportunities to get appointed to local boards, too. So if you care a lot about, like, parks and recreation, there's par there's a parks and rec board that you could be appointed to. And here in my community, that means it governs our ice arenas, our local parks, um, those kinds of things. And so um, the folks who I know that got appointed to the local um, parks and rec board are working on doing, like, a massive renovation at the ice arena. So people whose kids figure skate, they decided they wanted to be appointed to the board because it's something that's important to them. They're, they're at the rink all the time and they wanted to have a say in how, how it was going to be built out. So those are all different kinds of ways you can get involved um, if you have an interest in something in the community. Awesome. Very cool. Well, good to know. Madi, thank you so much for your time. Uh, truly, we both look up to you um, and this, this means a lot. So thank you for for chatting with us. We really do, and we hope to see Absolutely. you at uh, AYF Olympics in Michigan or whatever. <laughs> so we'll see you there. And High Tech right. Talks is always, always rooting for you. Yes, 100%. So. Oh, thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Of course. <laughs> All right, take care. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of High Tech Talks. The official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Krista Marina Apardian. And I'm Haig Minasian. And we're just a couple of Armenians. Talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.